Three at the Back, the podcast from OptiPro. I'm Ryan Byer and I'll be your host for today's episode. So today we're back to looking at the more applied nature of analysis and recruitment within professional football with a focus on how the game has evolved since the introduction of performance data and how um, how your league can, uh, can affect on how you use this. You know, we know not every team is, uh, is at the top end of the Premier League, Champions League, so um, we're going to look at that side of things today. Today I'm joined by uh, two people with, with some 30 years experience uh, in this side of the game. We've got Ben McCrill, Head of OptiPro, and Steve Head, uh, Chief Scout Chart and Athletic. Hi Ben. Hi Brian, you good? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Thank you for joining us today and hello Steve, how are you? Very well, thank you. Excellent. Well. And thank you very much for, uh, for taking the time to, uh, to speak with us today. It's a pleasure. So for those who don't know, Steve joined Charlton earlier this summer. There's obviously been... Um, a lot, a lot of uh, reports said, written about Charleston over the last few years, but today we're going to look at the, the recruitment, the analysis side, where Steve specialises. So to start with, Steve, could you uh, give us a brief overview of, of your role and, uh, and your background within the, within the sport? Yeah, well, to, go, to go to Charlton first, I joined Charlton um, in May this year, um, after a period where the club hadn't had a chief scout for a long period of time, um, and I came in at a time when the club had just been relegated. Um, the manager at the time had left the club, um, and they were looking to recruit a new manager. So um, it was a it was a situation where we were looking for a fresh the club was looking for a fresh start, new people in post, looking to move forward, um, and very much develop my side of things on the recruitment alongside the new managerial appointment um, and a new challenge for all of us in in League One. Excellent, and. Um... And with no chief scout in place before before you arrived, I suppose did that give you almost the, a blank slate and, and the chance to uh, to build it in the way you see fit and to create it to your mould, perhaps? It, it did in some ways. I mean, the, the first thing to say is that the staff that were here when I arrived and are still here, the scouts of what I'm working with and the uh, the analysis people that were here before have been absolutely excellent, and they did a super super job last season um, keeping the club and where it needed to be in terms of recruitment wise. But uh, obviously there was no. Um, figurehead to it in terms of a chief scout. The chief executive, Catherine Mayer, took on a lot of responsibility for the um, um, for the work that was done and did an excellent job. So uh, it was it was bubbling along, but it just needed someone to come in and, and, and manage the department as such, which is where I came in. Excellent. And I know you've got experience in uh, in sort of setting up and forming recruitment sites. I think I believe that's something you and Ben have worked together on in the past. Is that right, Ben? Yeah. So I um, kind of first came across Steve uh, when we worked at Fulham. Um, when I joined the club, sort of late 2009, uh, early 2010, um, at that point, Steve was working mainly as uh, head of European scouting at the club, um, doing a lot of work on opposition scouting. Um, particularly at that point, we were in Europa League as well as the, the Premier League and uh, another cup competition. So Steve had a big job on his hands to manage the uh, opposition scouting process at the club. Uh, and where we came across each other on a regular basis was on that opposition scouting side where I was doing sort of uh, pre-match analysis, first team analysis, um, preparing for the opposition. And we worked very closely on uh, managing that process leading up to uh, the next game, uh, looking back over the last three games that that team had played. Um, so that's where it kind of all started. Uh, and then 2012, uh, Steve uh, became head of recruitment at Reading um, and very kindly asked me to come with him. Um, and at that point, we really did have a blank slate. Um, you know, Reading had just got promoted to the Premier League and they had a good ownership group uh, and were wanting to compete uh, with the Premier League clubs on the more European stage uh, in terms of scouting. Uh, and that was something that the club had, 
had a lot of experience of in the past, uh, had done bits when they were previously in the Premier League. So that was really our, our big challenge was to go in there and kind of set up a European scouting process. Um, you know, we, we focused that around data. Excellent. So what did that what did that setup look like? How did data feed into the live elements of it? Um, what did it? What, what was the underpinning process behind it? Could you tell tell us through that part? Well, I I'd first come across the first time I came across the actual term technical scouting was when I was working at Fulham, and we appointed um, and well, the club appointed a member of staff to actually oversee that side of things. <clears throat> at that time, I was working in academy football. I was assistant academy manager at Fulham between 1992 and 19. Uh, no, sorry, 2002 and 2008, um, and then I went across to work in senior recruitment. Um, and at that time, the club was undergoing a bit of a change. It'd been in the Premier League a few years, and we were looking to develop. So I got involved in the opposition work, as Ben has just alluded to, and I also got involved heavily in European scouting. Now, what happened there was because we obviously needed data on uh, foreign teams. I used to go and watch them play, and then we'd feed the information back in, and we'd find out about players from a technical side of things so that when I went to scout I wasn't going blind I knew certain things about the players in terms of their technical output so I had a good idea of what the player looked like on the laptop if you like and then it was just adding the live scout process so this is where the ideas were born to have live scout process and technical scout process I worked closely with Ben feeding information back to him and his department at Fulham along those lines so when it came, when I was offered the opportunity to go to Reading to set up a completely new department, I took Ben with me because I knew that he was the guy that would be able to, who knew my vision of how I thought scouting should look in the modern era, a, a mixture of data, live scout, video scouting, all the elements you need to make it make it work for you, and all work for the club. Um, so he came in with me and we set up a department with the full backing of, of Reading at the time um, to make sure that um, we were covering the leagues as well as we could because we didn't have the money and this is the key thing this is where technical scouting and data helps if you don't have the money to have a scout in every single country as some clubs do in the Premier League we didn't have that already so we needed to find a way to make it work for us and the way we made it work for us was to look at the data very strongly and get a good picture of a league or two or all the leagues across Europe that we felt we could recruit from from a technical point of view and then we would cherry pick where we went to watch these games to watch the players that we picked out that we felt were relevant to us. I mean, we always used to laugh about it in that you'd, you'd set your parameters up um, with your data and you'd feed it in and you'd feed it in and you'd feed it in and you'd knock it down and you'd find out who was doing what and you'd end up with Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi. <laughs> so, so you had to take that out of the equation. I mean, it was a learning process for us the way we did it, um, but we had a very, very good setup there and we were hugely backed by the ownership at the time and the, and the club as, as a whole. And so that, that was where it was born, really, and it was, uh, it was a testing ground for us. It was a thoroughly enjoyable time for us, very, very enjoyable. Excellent, and I suppose it must have been, as well as creating that whole process in terms of combining the live and the data aspects and how that works within, within your team, as well as sort of looking to, to understand which type of player you'd need as well with the coaching staff and creating that profile using both the data and the live element. Is that, is that something that had to happen? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the buzzwords for us throughout our time at Fulham uh, through to Reading and, and uh, since the clubs that we've been at since um, has always been football philosophy and it's a word that's a phrase that's banded around a lot you know, you've got things like the England DNA with the FA at the moment um, which is very much focused around that football philosophy um, every manager has his own 
Um, you know, there are a lot of similarities between managers and, and their philosophy on style of play and types of players. Um, but everyone has a slight difference. Maybe they use a slightly different terminology or um, want something slightly different out of uh, different positions. So that was something we always had to be aware of. When I came to the club at Fulham, we had someone like Roy Hodgson who had a very structured approach to the game. We actually found that probably one of the easiest ones to work with because yeah, we definitely. knew exactly what he wanted okay. from every position. And it meant that when you did your live scouting, when you did your technical work, he knew exactly what you were looking for. And then as we've worked with different managers, we've had to adapt the approach, whether that's looking for a slightly different athletic approach for, for a player in a certain position or whether that's looking for them to make uh, certain decisions in certain areas. From a live perspective, that was what you know Steve and me were heavily looking at. And we'd always have to work with that manager to figure that out. And then we'd have to find a way to apply that to the data. Mm. So we'd have to look at what are, what are the attributes that uh, this manager wants from this position or from, from his team, and how can we replicate that in the data. So that's about selecting the right categories for each position. Um, if you want a a fullback that is going to get forward a lot and put a lot of crosses in the box, then you're going to put focus on a lot of um, things like crosses per 90 and, and uh, you know volume as much as accuracy. Whereas you might want a defensive midfield player where you don't worry so much about his attacking output, but you're, you're focused a lot more on how he breaks up play, looking at duels and interceptions and those kind of things. So we went through a very rigorous process with all the managers that we worked with to make sure we understood from a tactical perspective exactly what he wanted from, from his players. Uh, and then we applied that to our scouting processes. Excellent. So that clarity from the top down really, really made your lives easier and um, you understood your roles and, and that made a huge difference to both that, that live and that technical process. Yes, it did. I mean, it, it, it was an important part of what we did. The key to it we found as we went along was that you had to conquer the area you were actually in. So from a from a chief scout perspective, it's as much about knowing the squad you've got as it is about knowing what you've got to get. Because if you're talking about replacing a player, um, if the player's been sold or the player's leaving the club for various reasons, then you've got to understand what that player brought to the club. If he's a valued player that you had who contributed heavily to your success, then you know it's the situation where you have to replace what the player has brought you, not the player. Um, but you also have to be very, very aware that that player has his own personality, he has his own character that he brings to the dressing room, that the manager or the coaching staff value. So there are so many strands to producing um, a player. And the, and the technical side of things, the technical side of scouting, fits into that. Um, and that's the only thing, well, not the only thing, but that's the thing that we can... We can say, well, look, you know, he, he produces this in games. This is what he does. He crosses the ball there, he does this, he does that. But when you actually drill down into it, and this is where the coaching staff come into it, and this was an interesting thing that we found working with the coaching staff down the years, is that you'll say, well, in this particular period of time, he had quite a dip in his performance. And then the coaching staff will say, oh, yeah, well, that was because this happened, that happened, the other things. So they start to buy into it from a coaching side of things and say, oh, yeah, well, in that particular game, um, the structure of the team was different. There was a different, for example, if it's a right-back, there was a different right-centre-back playing alongside him who perhaps didn't pass him the ball as often as he liked. He preferred to play out off the other side. He preferred to hit diagonals and just 10-yard passes. So this particular player wasn't getting the ball early enough to do the things that he'd done if someone else was playing there. See what I mean? So you, you really do get involved in the actual 
drilling right down to see where the stat is, what, what's behind it, and how does it work. So that's when everybody starts to starts to contribute to the um, starts to contribute to the program, if you like. It's it, it's a it's a useful tool from that perspective. Excellent, and that's probably a prime example of how how the coaching staff can feed into this side of things and how there's buy-in from from all parts of the backroom staff. Is that yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we've actually been quite fortunate. I think in that we've worked with a lot of managers who did buy into that process. Definitely. You know, I think there's I think there's a lot of managers out there, a lot of coaching staff that don't do that at clubs. I mm. think it's you know there is a as we know a lot at Opta, there is a huge variance across Europe, across the world of coaches who have knowledge of data and how it can be applied and coaches that don't. And that, that's often experience and background on how they developed as coaches. Mm. And I think the managers we worked with were very fortunate. I mean, we always tell the story about the uh, time at Reading with one, with one manager where we were doing an analysis of our squad and it was all for scouting purposes. We were breaking down the squad and using technical data and um, using uh, kind of our, what we call scout our squad. Um, where we asked the scouts to come and watch our games and, and put together scout reports on our own players so that we've got a real detailed knowledge of, of how we feel about our own team. And we were doing this work in our office one day, going through each player at a time. And the manager walked in and was like, you've got to show this to the rest of the coaching staff. We've, we've got to sit down and do this. And we ended up spending three or four hours going through every single player in minute detail, looking at his technical data, looking at what our scouts had said about that player. And just drilling down into into every player's strengths, weaknesses, tendencies, um, and that was a huge moment, particularly at our time at Reading, where we really felt that buy-in from the coaching staff. Uh, and you know, I think that's something that's really developing in the football community now. I think more and more managers and coaches, particularly those ones who maybe had data as a player, you know, people like you, Gary Nevels, and, and those guys who are who've had data at the end of their careers as part of their processes players and they're now going into coaching and they see the value of it and, and I think that's where we'll continue to see that development and we certainly did in the clubs that we worked at. Yeah I mean it, it's it's more and more now I mean if you when if you watch as much football as as I tend to in my role which is the job effectively um, if you look closely as a supporter or as a if you watch into 23 football and that particularly and senior football to some extent you're seeing a lot of the, lot of the players are wearing these data trackers on their in their shirts, and the telltale signs, the little green flashing light coming through the back of the back of the shirt. I, I laughed at it. I was coming more game, and I was at, I was watching the game the other night, and um, and I could see the, the little lights flashing. And so, virtually every level of the game now, I would say it's an important thing. You know, even managers and coaching staff, and there are some about who really, you know, they, they tend to not trust it sometimes, and, and there are a few still out there, um, and which is fine. It's no problem. Um, because you know that's the challenge is to make it work for everybody. But even them, I guarantee you, come a Monday or a Tuesday morning, somebody will be feeding information into them about the performance of the squad from the weekend, how many yards they covered, how many tackles they made, uh, how many challenges, how many shots. That's all data. It's all data. Be it somebody ticking it. So in I remember the early days when I was when I was just finishing playing. Um, there was a coach who used to work on the England staff, a gentleman by the name of Jimmy Kelman, um, who's a uh, if you're my age, you'll know Jim because he did a lot of the um, work with the young coaches and aspiring coaches of which I was one back in the 70s and the 80s. People like Les Reed at Southampton that was heavily involved as a staff coach. And Jim, when I was playing, used to get me and the, at that time I was only a, a bit part player at Wickham Wanderers. And we used to sit in the stand literally with a bit of paper ticking off 
I was doing a right back, somebody else would do a left back, how many touches he had, how many forward passes. So it was rudimentary data. And this would have been back in about 1987, um, just when my career was sort of coming to an end and I was beginning to coach. So it was just people were starting to do it then. And then we went into, I, I got into coaching, joined Southampton in 1992 as an academy coach doing literally one night a week's coaching. And I'm fortunate in that the, in those, that period of time between then and now, there's been lots of changes in the game. You know, the, the blueprint for the success of future English football in 1995. That was when I got qualified fully as a coach. I was fortunate enough to go into Southampton um, as youth team coach for a few years, then joined uh, Fulham in a similar capacity. So I've been there. I've seen it come through um, from its rudimentary stages to where we sit now, which is which is a heavily advanced scenario. And, and the key is to work it with your club. You know, every club is different. You know, Reading was different. Um, I worked at Norwich for a year. They used it. It was different. They worked at Wolves last year. They used it in a slightly different way, and now I'm at Charlton, and we use it in a slightly different way here. A lot of it is down to listen. There's a cost to everything, um, but it doesn't prohibit you. You know, you can there can you can find information out, and you can use it to your best ability. You don't have to have 50 million pound packages. We're not all you know top six Champions League clubs. We not everybody can be that. Um, and sometimes I've found, in particular, and, and Ben I'm sure testified to this. When you're working with a smaller budget, it makes you more specific with what you do anyway. It makes you become a little bit better. I'm not for one minute suggesting the big clubs don't do it well. I know they do. Um, but I'm just saying from the experience that I've had in the clubs I've worked at, have tended to be, you know, Southampton at the time were a, always a Premier League club when I was there for 10 years. Similar at Fulham, always a Premier League club. But Premier League clubs that were probably, you know, aspiring to be top 10 clubs. And, and, and the four years that I worked as opposition and European at Fulham, having come through the academy, you know, the club finished in the top half of the league every season that season. I'm not for one minute suggesting that had anything to do with me, far from it. But I think that the club developed as a whole and the recruitment and the scouting and all the processes, if you push that forward um, and, the, and the managers were receptive to what was going on, the club was developing people and it was developing as a team as well. And it was very open to new ideas. I mean, there was the sports science department at Fulham at that time and at Charlton now. I think they're probably completely different places to what they were even five years ago. Um, and it's all it's all down to the advancement of you know of, of the new new techniques that are coming. You've got to stay ahead of the game, really. I think, I think that's a really important point that Steve just made as well about um, the different levels of clubs and how they can use data. You know, we worked at clubs, as Steve said, that were um, you know mid-table Premier League clubs, promoted clubs to the Premier League, um, and and you know now Steve Steve working here at Charlton, a club that's aspiring to be back in the Championship. And actually, the the challenges that those clubs have compared to the uh, the top six clubs who are looking for that one percent of players that could compete at Champions League level, and that's what you know. We know a lot of the clubs that, that we work with at that end of the, the spectrum are have huge data science teams and are having to do that because they're having to find that 1% of players. At the clubs that we've worked at, it's almost the 1% of players that you can get that will make a difference at your level. So it's the same challenge, but actually, as Steve alluded to earlier, at the clubs that we've had, and I know that, you know, obviously similarly here at Charlton now, there's no kind of European scouting network that the clubs have to um, go and ask someone to go and watch a player in Portugal or watch a player in Spanish second division. So you have to think about it slightly differently. And data was the biggest part of that for us, uh, Reading and Fulham. Um, and I know the clubs that Steve went to afterwards were the same with me. Data had to be the central part of that because you have to be able to scout these uh, regions to find those players that fit your mould and fit 
type of player that you want to bring into your club, but that are affordable from a wages perspective, from a, a buying that player, um, and all things like character and things that we can't track with data, that has to be researched as well. So I think <coughs> we always enjoyed and continue to enjoy the challenges of working at clubs like this, like this and at the clubs that we've worked at in the past because you have you have to try and compete with those bigger clubs and we did that using data and I think that we were, it was a very enjoyable process, a very exciting process to be a part of. It was, yeah. I mean, it was... Uh... In, in terms of the uh, bigger picture as well, it, it, it can in the role. I mean, in the role, to give you an, an overview. In the role of chief scout, you get you get you get offered a lot of players. Um, you get a lot of players. You get made aware that players are coming to the end of their contract. You get made aware that um, certain players may be available to buy in the summer. Um, and the quick way to find out about these players is through data. Um, some players you will know about. Um, because you will have seen them play, and they say, oh, I have an opinion on that player because we've watched him, we have our reports that we've done through the live scout process. Other players you may not know, and this probably at, the, at most levels would be a foreign player. Now, some clubs um, are in a position where they can you know, have eyes on that player quite quickly, whereas other clubs aren't, and this is where your data comes in. So it gives you an initial view of what the player what looks like. You can profile the player, and then when you, what you can do with that is you can profile him using data against the championship. You can profile him against um, League One, you can profile him against the Premier League, and you can profile him against players that are playing in his position of similar type. And that allows you to do two things. Firstly, it allows you to make sure that the player, data-wise, stacks up against what the league, league challenges are. And secondly, it allows you to evaluate a player's value in the transfer market financially, to a certain extent, um, by way of that. So you get an idea of if a player's on, on whether the market or the, the, the price that you, you should be paying for this player, or that, you know, listen, there are so many other factors to come into, into play when you're doing a deal for a player. So many, too numerous to mention. And, too complicated but um, from my perspective I always like to think that I can provide my chief executive or my board of directors um, with an honest assessment of a player's value based on information that I have to hand it, it, it makes it makes sense you know if you if you go and buy a car you know if you're going to buy a, a certain particular type of car then you you know what the, the level of that car is based on how many miles it's done how many owners it's had um, its service history well that's what you're doing with a player really in some ways. So it's the same thing, and you wouldn't want to part with more hard-earned cash than you would want to for that particular vehicle. So it's the same as a, as a footballer, you know, where's, where does he lie, what's his value, uh, what's his resale value, what, what does he bring to the club, is he the type of player we need. Um, there are some very, very good examples up and down the country of players that have been bought for um, relatively low fees who've gone on to be hugely successful. And you know, I would like to think that you know data may have played a part in that. I don't know, because I wasn't at the club's concern, but I would imagine it probably had something to do with it. Excellent. And um, on that note, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and look more about the opposition analysis side and how that feeds into the data and the tactical side of the game. Welcome back to the next section of Three at the Back. Uh, in this section, we're going to talk a bit more about um, Stephen Ben's work as uh, opposition analysts and how that feeds into the tactical side of the game. And um, on that note, Steve, you've uh, you've got an extensive background as a coach. So could you tell us a bit about that and where you've worked, uh, the roles you've done, and that side of things, please? Yeah, I, I um, began coaching 
in around about 1992, and I was fortunate enough um, to get involved in the Southampton Academy. Started out like most young coaches, doing one night a week. I was a, um, a part-time coach, and the club was very progressive at that time. It was the it was probably one of the only clubs in the country that had a full 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 complement of youth team players that was actually paid for by the club. In those days, the club had to pay for apprentices. You were an apprentice professional footballer, and we used to coach them. And in those days, we used to um, we used to go and take the boys away to our residential coaching camps. And I got involved in all that, so I had a fantastic backgrounding um, in coaching. And during that time, Southampton supported me. Um, I got fully qualified, and eventually, over a period of time, did my apprenticeship, as it were, and I ended up as youth team coach, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, and it's a basis for the work um, that I, I took forward into my later career. I left I left uh, Southampton in nineteen, sorry, two thousand and two, and joined Fulham in a similar role, assistant academy manager, coaching under 12s through to under 18s broadly speaking over a period of about eight years um, worked with some fantastic managers I went in began working with Jean Tagana um, having previously worked at Southampton with people like Gordon Strachan Dave Jones um, Glenn Hoddle um, Alan Ball World Cup winner um, fantastic experiences Graham Souness multiple you know Champions League winner and, and international footballer captain at Liverpool I mean if you can't educate yourself working with these guys then you know you really shouldn't be in the game so and so it gave me a, a wonderful grounding in football and as my career developed I'd always been in, interested in scouting because I've already I'd always done it from the early days when I worked at Southampton Lauren Menemy was the director of football he used to insist that his coaching staff went out um, and did the scouting because at that time the clubs didn't have the huge scouting networks that some of them have today you know um, and for me as a young coach being sent to watch games of football to watch top class football and educate myself on the, tech, the technical and the tactical side of the game was just what I needed and I carried that right the way through so it was a natural progression for me to go from um, if you like the training ground on a daily basis to working in in recruitment I'd always done opposition scouting and I would always really enjoy picking apart a team's performance and producing a report and presenting the report to the analysis team and the, and the coaching staff and so when I was offered the opportunity to head up Fulham's opposition scouting um, in around about 2008 um, then I jumped I jumped at the chance Barry Simmons and Roy Barry Simmons was the head of recruitment he got me involved and, and from that grew a role where I was um, managing the European scouts and scouting side of things to a certain extent and sub sub managing it within within the bigger framework. Um, so I got the opportunity to travel all over Europe and the world really and, and watch football and look at teams play and then produce reports for opposition work and, uh, and domestic work as well, particularly as, as Ben mentioned earlier. Um, people may remember at Fulham we had a run to the Euro Europa League final and I was responsible for doing virtually all the opposition work that led into that um, and it was an absolutely sensational experience um, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Got my knowledge of European football, got a list of contacts in Europe that was top-notch useful for me and for the clubs I was working at and although you don't realize it at the time but you know you, you don't when, when you move your career on and you have these experiences you look back on it and you think actually that was a golden time for me as a, as a, as a football person because it educated me I used to go and watch say for example at Fulham we were playing Juventus in the Europa League uh, Juventus this game may have been on Sunday and so I used to fly out to Italy on the, on the Friday and then fortunate enough to go and watch Inter Milan play then go and watch, you know, Cagliari or those sort of clubs and all the big Italian clubs and then do my game on a Sunday and fly home on the Monday with a raft of knowledge 
on the Italian league. And if you think that year, um, Fulham played teams from uh, played Shakhtar Donetsk from the you know the Ukrainian league. Uh, we played um, German teams, uh, Wolfsburg. We played Hamburg. We played Juventus. We played some Dutch Dutch clubs. So you know, in that respect, it was it was just a, a fantastic experience, um, and it, it taught me it taught me great things about European football. Excellent. And so, for example, we take the, the Juventus game and the process of putting your report together. Mm. Uh, how would that work? What would that look like? Well, it would uh, it would mean myself, I'd go and watch them play domestically um, within their own league. And we'd also go and, I'd go and watch them play in the Europa League as well. Because we found, and this is a learning curve as well, that the European teams particularly, you were used to European competition, they would play differently in Europe. It would be a different setup. So if you went to watch them play, say you went to watch them play Milan on a Saturday, and then on the Thursday they play in a group game in the Europa League, it would be a different vibe to it. And we quickly learned that. You couldn't you couldn't put all your eggs in one basket. So it was important, the lesson from that was it was important to take a, a big view of what they were playing like, the players they used and how they were set up. So that was the first thing. We had a reporting procedure that was streamlined, um, set up by the analysis department, Ben's group of people, so that whenever we went to watch a game we were looking at it specifically. We were looking at it through a Fulham set of eyes at that time. And again, that's another thing I've taken forward with me. Uniformity in, re in reporting is important for the club you're at. You cannot have people just doing disparate reports because the information they provide might be really, really good, but it might not be any use to the team that you're playing with. At that time at Fulham, we were playing in a very particular way, with a particular style. And I was looking at it completely. It got to the point where I was watching uh, teams like, uh, people may remember it, we played Wolfsburg um, particularly. Um, I know you mentioned Juventus, but the Wolfsburg is a, is a good example um, because we knew how they would play. And we knew what their weaknesses were. And we scored out there, I believe, after a minute away from home. We nicked a goal. And every eye was here. But we knew what they were doing, and that was as a result of watching them, um, analysing their play, analysing their data. They had a lot of sideways passes, lots of sideways passes across the back. So all the information that we put together led to a particular skill being put in place. I think it was by Bobby Zamora where he cut a pass out across the back, ran through and scored, and we were one there after about five minutes. And then we oh, didn't Bobby do what? We knew what was going to happen there. We predicted that. Um, so that's a really good example of how data and analysis helps the team. And so we took that forward. We took that forward into our entire league work. Excellent. Yeah. And and you mentioned the analysis the analysis team would help you in terms of the, the benchmarks, the frameworks for, for how you uh, go and you go and assess your position. So Ben, could you talk about how, how that worked from your side of things? Yeah, so I mean when I joined the club, um, uh, Andy Scolding, who rec most recently spent time um, significant time with the FA uh, working as an analyst there. He um, had set up a pretty rigorous process of uh, reporting um, and, a, and a really good framework um, to work between the scouting department and the analysis department. I think you know, I'd like to think that at that point it was relatively um, new in the, in the development of, of bringing the scouting and the analysis teams together uh, and really helped getting them to work um, together on things like opposition scouting, preparing for oppositions. And, and so I think the, the process that we put in place worked really well because there was a constant communication between the scouts and the analysts. And you know, the process there was 
that the scouts would go and watch games um, and write reports using the templates that uh, had been set up. And as Steve mentioned, they were very specific to exactly what, at that point, Roy Hodgson and with other managers after that, exactly what they wanted. There was no point the scouts writing about a weakness in the opposition that we couldn't exploit because of the way we played. So we had to be very specific about identifying strengths and weaknesses in the opposition that we could exploit or that we could defend against based on the way that we'd set up. So that was really important. And the process from there was um, constant communication via phone. Me and Steve would sit down on a regular basis every week to look at the reports that have been put together, consolidate the three or four match reports that the scouts had written. Um, and actually as things developed, I ended up spending a lot of time going and watching games with Steve and some of the other scouts, um, which was really the start of my kind of scouting development. Um, and education by going to the last game the opposition played where I'd code uh, in the game uh, on an iPad and the guys would write their reports we'd collate all that information together and then we'd put together the scouting pack for the, uh, the coaching staff and the presentation along with the video uh, and then the data would, would have a big part in that in terms of as Steve mentioned very specific things that we could look at like the number of sideways passes the, the where they penetrated in midfield the way they uh, created their chances based on what the scouts had seen in their um, in the games that they've been to. And the other thing that we've discussed on previous podcasts is that data also gave us the ability to look over longer periods of time. Steve mentioned, you know, he's flying all over Europe. We've got Europa League games on Thursday. We've got games at the weekends. We can only go and see as many games as, we, as is humanly possible, which was generally three to four games of the the opposition but as we know teams can be very different over those three or four games as they could be at other periods in the season and we needed to make sure we were aware of everything that happened in the season and not just that kind of snapshot so we used data to do that we looked over a much longer period of time were the tendencies that we'd seen in those three or four games that the guys had scouted were they uh, the same as what had happened over longer periods of the season or, or had they recently changed was there um, a difference home and away as Steve mentioned you know a lot of big differences we noticed between um, the Europa League and, and the domestic competitions so data provided the real basis for that and try to analyze those very specific situations Excellent. And Steve, with your experience as not only a coach but also a player, how has that fed into uh, your work in this, on this side of the game? Well, I mean, when I was playing, there was there was no um, there was no data at all. I mean, it was you'd turn up, turn up and play effectively. You know, uh, it was a very very different a different world. You know, I mean, to what it is now. But um, I think I think young players today, if I was a young player today, I, I think that like Ben mentioned earlier, that, that they're growing up with it. You know, and they're hungry for the they're hungry for the feedback. Um, and I certainly know that here at Charlton, particularly our first team coaching staff, the manager um, and the two first team coaches and the academy coaches as well, under 23 coaches, they spend an awful lot of time with the, with the players here, going through their clips, analysing their performance, analysing the data that's come out of their performance, interpreting it for them. So the skill set that um, coach now has or has to have far greater than, than it ever was at any time and it's only gonna it's only gonna that's only gonna develop you know and the same with the players we hopefully now have a generation of players that have grown up with this and they I wouldn't say they demand it but they the expectation now is that a, a player's performance and it makes them accountable you know you, you say well look this is this is what you look like in, in, in black and white and we interpret that and you discuss it and there may be reasons for certain things so you can, you know, you, you have to be careful with it, you know, you, you've got to be careful with it, 
because after all, we're dealing with human beings here. Let's never get away yeah. from that. And there are situations that a player takes onto a pitch and uh, certain circumstances that you know may affect performance and opposition. So, so that's where that's where that's where it grows from. I mean, it's, it's important. Um, it's important to assess opposition as we spoke about, but it's also important to remember that you've got a team of eleven players, um, and your team of eleven players is is probably more important than anything. So you've got to make sure that you know you prepare your teams correctly. As a consistent my coaching side of things, you know the balance between assessment of opposition and making sure that your team feel that you know they are they are being they are you know they are valued and they are being um, coached and, and, and worked with. Not not uh, you know not not um, not put in a position where everything is based upon what the opposition is doing. I think that's the a really interesting point there because something that we did we started doing at Fulham um, that was really important and something that we passed on. You know, when we moved on to clubs like Reading, uh, we were also still involved in the analysis department as well because we were doing the opposition scouting. We were managing that myself and Steve did a lot of the opposition scouting at Reading, and we were then working with the analysis department. And one of the key things we took away from that process at Fulham was whenever you're doing an opposition scouting video and you're preparing a document with data and with um, scouting reports, you always have to refer back to you, what you do. And we always finished each section of um, a video with clips on us. So we do, uh, you know, the, the weaknesses section of the opposition. We'd be breaking down their last three or four games, showing examples of where those weaknesses had occurred. But then we'd always finish that section with clips of us doing what it was yeah. that we were trying to break down the opposition that we were about to play, showing the players that they were capable because they'd done it before of attacking those weaknesses in a certain way. And that's that reinforcement, that positive reinforcement of saying. You know, we might be playing against Manchester United at Old Trafford and it's a relatively daunting task for a, a smaller club in the Premier League. But you have done the things before that, uh, you know, break down those weaknesses in other teams that you can do the same thing against Manchester United. And I think that's why, you know, particularly at Fulham, we were very successful as a very small club in the Premier League, but finishing in the top 10 because we had that mentality of we can do what the other clubs, uh, we can beat the, the bigger clubs because we can attack their weaknesses, because we've done the preparation, because we've understood from an opposition scouting perspective, we've done the analysis work, we understand we, we understand our own team, we understand our limitations, but we also understand that those limitations can be structured in a way that you know can be very effective. And I think that we talk a lot about our Fulham days as, as being a very successful time. Uh, and I think that squad, um, you know, th through Roy Hodgson into Mark Hughes and into Marignol, still maintain that structure uh, and being able to protect each other's weaknesses um, and play in a way that was was really effective, and that's why we have you know so much success. Yeah, and, and, the, and the other thing with that as well is that the spring to mind. I've just sat there thinking that as, as Ben was talking, is that there's a whole new raft of employment opportunities within football now for people who have these skills. You know, people who in years gone by, you know, when I first started coaching, the coaching um, the youth team coach was probably an ex-player, which is which is right and proper, who come through the ranks, um, probably played a few hundred games for the club and, and, and his reward at the end of it, because the salaries weren't great, particularly at the lower age, was to have a, a good job coaching the youth team. And then maybe he'd step up and do the reserves and then you do the first team. I mean, the staff at, at Reading, when I finished my playing days at Reading, was there was a first team manager, there was a first team coach who doubled up sometimes as the reserve team coach, who sometimes was a part-time role, and there was a youth team coach who was a part-time role. And that was how it was, you know, and, and when, from that, we look at where we are now, 
And that was probably only back end in the 1980s. It's not that long ago. I mean, I know I am pretty old now, but in terms of experience, you know, and, and nowadays you look at clubs now and there's, there's guys working there behind the scenes doing crunching the numbers and doing the data and video analysis and, and all the rest of it. So it's created all, and these guys have a value and they have a role. So in terms of that um, and the support they can provide um, and the help they can give is is, is is very important, particularly for, a, in my opinion, for a recruitment department that's looking to squeeze everything it can out of itself. You don't, I emphasize the point, you have to have scouts, of course you do. It's, 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 there'll never ever be, um, there'll never ever be a time where but there is no value to watching games. I don't. I, I strongly believe that. By value to watching games, clubs who, who don't watch games, you know, and just do it on analysis and on laptops, and they get it their own way. But for me personally, you go and watch football matches because you get a feel for the game. But on the back of that, the support that you can get from behind the scenes, I believe now is as good as it's as good as it's ever been. And from a personal perspective, I I welcome it and I rely on it. You know, I use it a lot. It is, it's very important for me. Excellent. And one thing I want to I want to bring it back to is you mentioned uh, here at Charlton, you've got a really good culture of um, of feeding back to the academy players under 23s first team. I just wanted to ask how how perhaps that changed between an under 23 player and maybe your first team captain. How you can how you can communicate that feedback both you've seen what you've seen with your eyes and from the data. How that changed in terms of your approach. I think I think the main difference is that you're dealing with you're dealing with more mature players. That's the key to it. You're dealing with a first team level. You're probably dealing with a player. I don't know, who maybe has played 150, 200 league games. So he has his own personality in terms of his playing personality. He has a lot of experience within the league. Whereas with an under-23, under-21 player, you're dealing with a player who is developing his, his career in the game. So he doesn't have that experience of you know the, the proverbial wet Tuesday night at Mansfield to draw on. So you're trying to provide that, look, you're going to need these skills. You're, this is your performance now. If you're going to go on to the next level, are you a first team player? Then you're going to need to know about these things so that when you go to play in that environment, yes, you can't, as again, it comes with the scouting, you can't replicate going to play in, playing in front of, you know, a 30,000 crowd or 25, whatever. You can't replicate that anywhere other than actually doing it. But what you can do is you can make sure that when a player walks on the pitch, he has the perfect idea, he has a good idea of what is required of him in that environment. And similarly with uh, you know older players, my experience with uh, with the players who have long, great longevity in the game, someone like a, a Johnny Jackson, we've got at our club for example. Now Johnny is as hungry to learn now as he was when he was young. I'm sure. I mean, I didn't know John as a young player. I know he had a youth background at Spurs, and I can remember watching him play for Spurs. And the one thing that Johnny has retained throughout his whole career is his enthusiasm for football. Um, and that's true of, of all our squad. You know, they are a terrific bunch of players. And the ones that have a good career in the game are the ones that want to learn, never think they've got the game taped, never think that they've got the game mastered, always willing to listen, always willing to learn. And critically, and we have this at Charlton now, we have an environment where the older players help the younger players. I look around and I see people who play people like Chris Solly, people like Johnny, lads like that, helping our younger players like Consa, uh, Esri Consa, Addy Lookman, who are just breaking through, are going to have hopefully have fantastic careers in the game. But these boys, these boys are being helped by the senior players of this club, and it's testament to the good work that's been done, especially by the manager and by the, the recruitment process over the summer that we've brought in players that can develop our young players. Because I come back to the point, there are so many different ways 
and influences that you have for buying a particular player. I'm sure over the years, and I know at Fulham certainly and at Reading, you'd look at, and Norwich as well for me, you you think, well, why have they bought that player? I don't get that, but a player is bought for many different reasons. And certain players add something to the dressing room. Yes, of course, it's all about what they do on the pitch. I understand that. But sometimes a player who is producing it on the pitch gives so much in the dressing room as well. His, his, his value is doubled for us. Because of that, we had a reputation at Fulham of bringing in older players and, and, and at that time. And, but it was right for the club at that particular time. Players along the line, John Arnarisa was brought in at a late stage of his career. Bobby Zamora, possibly Danny Murphy, who was a, a Charlton player at one point. Damien Duff. Now, these players brought so much with them to the table. But they, were, they had one thing in common. They were all good pros. And it's vitally important. Um, and as I say, you know, that I find here at Charlton's particularly at the moment, the young, the young players could not have a better environment to develop. And that's one of the reasons why this club has always produced such outstanding young players going down the years. Excellent. And you mentioned Danny Murphy then. I know, Ben, you've mentioned in the past how Danny is perhaps a good example of a player who's taken on feedback, embraced data coming into their career when perhaps they haven't started with it, and how they've been a good example of how they can integrate that sort of culture within the team. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Danny is a great example of somebody who, at the end of his career, was still playing at a very high level, still playing in Europa Leagues. Um, the captain of the team was pretty much always there in the league games as well in terms of playing 90 minutes. So a player right at the top of his game, right to the end of his career. And what was so you know, inspiring, particularly for the younger players with Danny, was that he was still so willing to improve. It's something that you mentioned about Johnny Jackson. And I think Danny really embraced the data, really embraced the process of analysis. He was always one of the first people in the office on a Monday morning wanting to look at his data, wanting to watch his clips back. And that was a guy who was, what, 34, 35 at the end of his career. But one of the one of the best examples of uh, that I use a lot with, uh, of someone like Danny is that his ability to relate that back to, to players that he was playing with. I remember on, on numerous occasions during the season that Moussa Dembele joined from Albar. Yeah, at that point, Moussa was a left winger playing in Holland in that very typical 4-3-3 system. But Steve, along with the other scouts, had seen the qualities in him to play as a central midfield player, and that's why we brought him to the club. Danny was instrumental in teaching Musa how to play central midfield, and the way he did that was sitting next to him in our office in the analysis department, going through the Musa's clips, going through Danny's clips together, looking at the data, and talking about how Musa could improve his understanding of, of playing as a central midfield player. And now, you know, I still believe Musa is one of the most effective midfield players in the Premier League, and I expect he would be, you know, Musa is a very good guy. And I'm I'm sure he would say that Danny had a huge role to play in that. And I think that's where somebody like Danny Murphy, again, you know, Johnny Jackson, Chris Solly, Charlton, those types of players who can relate that information back to younger players, teach them about the game, and now using data and using performance analysis feedback mechanisms are a huge, playing a huge role in the development of young players. And if you're lucky enough to have somebody of Danny Murphy's experience and quality who is willing to do that and willing to embrace data and, and the new generation of feedback, then that plays a huge role and, and you know made our lives a lot really uh, easier. I think I think that's a, a hugely important point to emphasise because the misconception that a lot of people have when you talk about data within football is that it's just numbers. It's just you know yeah he produces. Because people, rightly or wrongly, will watch Sky Sports um, transfer deadline day and they produce this rough stat, 75% of this, 25% of that, 10 passes, 8 passes, 6 passes. 
And people think, oh, that's data. That's how data works in football. That is probably just a tiny part of it. And and the crucial thing is that the unseen bits that people won't see is, as Ben says, the Danny Murphys of this world, the Johnny Jacksons of this world, the Solis of this world, who are embracing that and using it to educate themselves and younger players as well. And to be fair, they probably don't even realise they're doing it because it's a resource that's there for them that they use. And they don't realise it, but we, as more experienced members of staff who didn't grow up with that environment, are looking at it and over our, you know, over the top of our, our reading glasses and saying, you don't realise how lucky you are to have somebody like that in, in the room who is willing to sit down with you, with the staff. Listen, there's a, there's a support process there. Obviously, a, a player doesn't have the time to sit down and analyse and go through it. That's done for him. But how much more resonance does it have when Johnny Jackson sits with Esri Conference and says, look, just come and have a sit, show me this, when Danny Murphy sits with Musa Dembele. We've spent however much money it was on Musa, I can't remember, I can't remember what the fee was, but for that I'm sure it was a significant amount of money for Fulham. And for the captain of the squad to do it, it just helped because, again, it's an investment for the club, and if you bring a player into a club, it's beholden upon you to develop that player. He's a member of staff, you know, and if you want to develop him, and, I, and I, I'll say, you know, that someone like a Musa Dembele was a sponge to learning as well, as are the young players at Charlton Athletic. I see it every day in my, my professional life. And they're giving themselves the best chance to do it. And the way they're doing that is through the lethal cocktail, if you like, of on the training ground with top quality coaching, top quality learning environment, on the pitch, learning, letting the game be the teacher, and then in the classroom, allowing the data to, to do its bit as well. So there's so much that's going into it. But as I say, it's an important point that, that you know, that the, 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 the next generation of coaches of this world 30-something players now who are going to be the, the next managers and coaches. They're growing up with this environment and they, and they, and they value it. You know, they really do. And it's good to see. It's good, it's good to see. Excellent. That's really, really interesting. And the final thing I want to pick up on today is, uh, is your work with the England team as an opposition analyst. Could you, uh, could you talk us through that, please? Yeah, that, that was something that occurred as a result of England having a, a bit of a revamp, I guess, if you like, this England DNA that Ben mentioned earlier in the, in the chat. And I, at the time, had worked with Roy Hodgson and with Ray Lewinson and with Andy Scorpion, who was the head of, head of analysis. And I was actually approached and asked if I'd do some work for the England senior men's team in preparation for tournaments, World Cups, and European Championships. And that basically formed the role of, during the international break, I was released by Reading to go, at that time, to go and watch future opposition. And I produced a detailed report on the way the team played, the setup, how they looked, the game they were playing in, and I'd feed that back to the Football Association for them to use leading into next opposition or into the tournaments and, and stuff like that. And it was it was very interesting because obviously with international football you do, you're not getting the the luxury, if you like, of watching a team play over a number of weeks, knowing the manager and having to say, Oh yeah, this is the type of manager, he does this, he was at Chelsea, he was at Arsenal, he did this, he did that. Not so with international football. And so it was a completely different way of looking at things. You know, uh, obviously, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to watch the Germans, the Spanish, the Italians, the French, some real, the, the Portuguese, some real top, top international, international teams. And from my perspective, where I guess I was quite useful, was that I was used to watching these players play for their club. So I was used to watching Cristiano Ronaldo play for, play for Real Madrid and the Bernabeu. And I was watching, you know, the, the, uh, Barcelona play. Fortunate enough once to have one weekend where I went to watch El Clasico in Madrid um, and then a couple of weeks later I was watching Spain play. So I was able to relate that knowledge 
to the to the international scene. Now, at that time, you see countries that have got a particular identity, the way they play, and that was the interesting thing for me. And I, I was able to feed that back to the Football Association with my knowledge of club football. So from that perspective, I think it was it was useful for for both parts. And I know Andy Schooley particularly used to use the information, and then he'd he'd do his work on the data side of things, and or else it's so we used to marry. And what was useful there was I knew how Andy worked, and because I worked with him, and so I knew, and I also knew Roy as well. So I knew how Roy worked, and I knew the information that he valued, and and Ray Lewinson as well. So I knew the kind of thing they'd be doing. So I think it it, it worked it worked for everybody in terms of streamlining the process. If you like. It was a thorough. I don't I don't do it now. My time is gone with England. Um, but it was I was extremely proud to represent my country. And it's funny, you know, I've held some relatively senior roles within football throughout my life. But the one thing people always ask me about is England. You know, that was a part-time role, but it was one that people are interested in because it's the national team. So I think that shows you just, you know, how much it, it, it means to people, you know, it really does. Yeah, and, and generally speaking, and it'd be great to hear your thoughts on this as well, Ben, the, the challenges, the benefits of data and international football, because as you mentioned, it's obviously, you know, they're not playing every week. Mm. There's not, it's not that chance to build a, a style as easy as it is at club level. So so how, uh, how does data feed into the international setup? I think one of the things that I know the FA are doing a lot of um, and have done in the last few years. We're obviously heavily involved with the FA at Opto as well. They have good size department. Uh, Reese Long has recently joined um, to head up the analysis department at the FA, having spent a number of very successful years. I'm very pleased to say as a Welshman uh, working for the Welsh Rugby Union. And you know, I think they they've taken a, um, a very interesting approach to really building that level of data. And, and going in a real data science approach alongside the tactical application side. Uh, they're really kind of building that department up now. And what they, they seem to be doing is, is really developing their understanding of every, every uh, domestic league globally, really drilling down into what makes the styles of play in each of those competitions, because then they can understand that those national teams will take a lot of the identity from those leagues. So really detailed work, some really interesting work I think that's going on at the FA. But as Steve mentioned, you know, the biggest challenge for those guys is they'll go months between games. That then affords them, I guess, the opportunity to uh, drill down into the, the players in the England squad, both senior and youth level, and really drill down into those players' performances, how those players are developing, how they're playing for their clubs. When they go back to their clubs, what style of play are they playing in those, um, in those games? And that's something that data really affords you the ability to do, to look over vast periods of time uh, and really drill down into the, the types of uh, teams that they're playing in and then how they can adapt those performances to play for the national team in whatever structure and setup uh, they're going through there. And I know that, that Reese and the guys at the FA are playing a huge role in this England DNA process in terms of providing a, a structure through data uh, for what that England D DNA is about and then that can be applied to all levels of the national team and I think they're doing that from under 16s all the way up to the senior team on both the men's and women's side and using our data to to really drill down that process and have that better understanding of in, as Steve mentioned before you know in black and white what is the England DNA what is that philosophy and I think the work that Reese and the guys and the team are doing around data is going to play a huge role in that and they're certainly uh, heavily invested in it and I think that the national team with with the people like Steve who are working on the opposition scouting side as well all of that information is being collected together to form that philosophy it takes time you know we've 
experience that at club level. You know, it takes um, significant time to build a philosophy, to understand exactly the nature of every position and what is expected, uh, and then to push that all the way through uh, into your academy. I mean, I can give you a, a rudimentary example of, of how that would work, particularly international level, is, is watching the watching the team play, and you see that certain players have a have a passing relationship with another player, and you think, oh, you know, you're watching the game, you're thinking, player A does not pass the ball to player B. That really happens, and then you sort of think, well, that's a club, that's a club thing. You know, they, they play together. So that's fed back to the analysis and give them something to chew on, to say, well, look, have a look at that. Because if we can stop that relationship, then we might have a chance, because that's something you look for. In the days, a club example of that would be when we were at Fulham. We noticed that certain little bits and pieces were that when Steven Gerrard and Fernando Torres were playing for Liverpool, Fernando Torres is the distance between those two when Gerrard got the ball and Torres got the ball was significantly greater than when Gerrard played and Torres didn't because Torres knew that if he made a running behind off the shoulder, he was quick enough and Steven Gerrard would, which blade of grass would you like me to drop on for you? It was that good. But when he didn't play, Liverpool's play compressed a little bit. So we knew that as a defensive unit at Fulham, that if, if those two played, we would need to be very aware our back four. So we might have to stretch the play a little bit. So we might have to think about how we were going to combat that. And that's the same at international football. And the key to it was when I was watching a fantastic Spanish team that won everything. They managed through that process of collecting data and finding out relationships and information. And I know for a fact that they, they really do lay great story in that kind of thing. So you've got a situation where you've got players from Real Madrid, you've got players from Barcelona who on a Saturday afternoon hate one another, but come together for the national team. But in previous years it hadn't happened before, whereas now it was. And I know that the processes that they had behind the scenes enabled them to knit the squad together to get the best out of everybody. And if you sprinkle into that mix the world-class players that they had, that's how come they were able to be successful. And I think that's the challenge for the English national team. And, and, and I can stress now that, you know, I know from factors vendors that the work is being done. There is top, top quality work being done in this country. It's as good as anywhere in the world. And the data and everything that, that is provided and the information, I mean, if we cross-pollinate, I know you guys work with other sports as well, obviously, and you look at the success of the English rugby team recently in Australia, you look at the success of the English cricket team recently, you look at the success of various other, the England women's team and things like that, and I'm pretty sure that when you examine their processes, I don't know, but I'm fairly sure I would imagine that, you know, there's an awful lot going on there, good stuff behind the scenes that supports the team getting out onto the pitch, because that's what it's all about. Without a doubt, without a doubt, I definitely agree with that. That's all we have time for, for today. So, Steve, thank you very much for, for joining us. Uh, best of luck for the rest of the season. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ben. Appreciate your time today. Thanks, Cheers. Thank you very much for listening.